Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I'm Greta Johnson. This week on the podcast, it is all about the ladies. We have homework from Stacey Schiff. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning nonfiction author. Her latest book is called The Witches, and it's about the Salem Witch Trials. She'll tell us about a series of books that she can't put down and that keep kind of popping up in conversations I've been having, too. We will also get extra credit homework from Sloane Crosley, who is another delightful author. Greta, do you have the song ready? I want to hear the song. I need to hear the song to get in the mood for this conversation, please play the song. is on the show. No, I shouldn't even no, say that. Should not I? Even, it's don't too... even joke. <laughs> Am I that's jinxing rude. it? Okay, so not Beyonce, but close, right? Close would be like Rihanna. <laughs> okay, so we're not talking to Beyonce, but we do have a pretty excellent guest this week on Nerdette. We're talking with Rebecca Traster. Her new book is called All the Single Ladies. It's the history of unmarried women and highlights the fact that unmarried women have been at the center of just about every social movement. I know it's only March, but I'm going to go ahead and say this is at least so far the most important book I've read in 2016. It's full of historical anecdotes that are actually entertaining, and there's also a lot of really great pop culture references, too. This is a must read, especially for the single ladies out there. But I would say that everyone would benefit from reading this book. Rebecca looks at modern female independence as more than just being able to have as much sex as you want, which I think is a really important, nuanced approach. And that's why this is a book that you need to have in your life. It will help you make sense of where you are, whether you're 15 or 50 or single or married. Rebecca Traster's book explores feminism through an intersectional lens. It's not just about rich white women fighting for suffrage. It's about all the ladies. When we talked with Rebecca on Skype, we started with this anecdote that she actually begins the book with, too. And it's about how when she was a little kid, she would read all of these books that had these really incredible, strong female protagonists like Little House on the Prairie or Little Women or Jane Eyre. And she was always really disappointed by the fact that these women got married and that was the end of the story. I've actually heard from so many women since the book has been published who also remembered sort of being disappointed by these endings to the coming of age tales because the endings were always the marriage. I mean, and this is true in Disney movies. It's true in Shakespeare. You know, marriage is often the conclusive end of a story, especially stories about women. And it's so fascinating. I mean, there has been some critique of this, this notion that the happy ending of marriage leaves us without the whole story, first of all, of the marriage that comes afterward, right? That marriage is the answer and that it just means something on its own. Oh, they got married, as if that has some definition. Whereas what we know from lived experience and are increasingly aware of is that marriage is 
differ significantly in shape, quality, tone, uh, levels of happiness that they produce. And so, of course, they are the beginning of a whole other story. But for so long, marriage really was kind of an ending to any sort of female independence, certainly. Yeah, I mean, there is something to that, right? It's like she got married, game over. Yes, yes. For many women, it was game over. I mean, in those early narratives that I'm talking about, the stories of young women in which what was available to them briefly in their childhood was this sense of possibility of what they might become. It was a sense, I mean, with all those stories, it was about education. In the, in the case of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, those, I mean, they were fictionalized accounts of, of Laura Ingalls Wilder's youth. Those books are really powered by Laura's imagination about what life could be like, about her own impulse toward exploration. She and her father in these books are, are all about, keep. let's go west, let's start over again. And it's really her sister Mary and her mother who are like, we got to stay put and, you know, go to school. But Laura is a really free spirit. It's very moving to me now reading them to my daughter, seeing exactly how energetic this young character is, how badly she wants to play with the boys at school. And as she's getting older, you know, she's increasingly aware of the fact that she can't, she can't go barefoot. She can't run around as much. She can't play ball. She has to stay inside and talk to the teacher that, you know, there's, you see that the limitations of adult womanhood that were in place for so long and so much of our history begin to creep in as she gets older. That of course is also true for Joe March, who has a very tomboyish relationship with Laurie, her neighbor, and certainly with Anne Shirley, who's so adventurous and is always playing and getting into trouble. Then what happens to all these women who have all of this spirit and drive to make trouble, to break rules, is that they wind up married. And of course, marriage for many years in eras in which women didn't have adult versions of the ability to express their rambunctiousness, their energy, their ambitions. Marriage was the institution on which they were economically dependent, on which they were dependent if they wanted to have a socially sanctioned sex life, on which they were dependent if they wanted to have children in a both a socially and economically stable way. So marriage was sort of the end for many of them. It also subsumed them because the it was the institution within which they were expected to devote their energies now to other people, their husbands and then their children. Right, right. And so it sort of stopped their progress and, and put a halt to many of their ambitions. Um, interestingly, Louisa May Alcott never married and spoke, who wrote Little Women, never married and spoke all the time and wrote all the time about her objections to marriage. She famously said, liberty is a better husband to many of us than love. You know, she, she has all of these very sharp lines about what's wrong with marriage. It's also interesting that Laura Ingalls herself wound up being a columnist, a local newspaper columnist, working as a journalist, as did her daughter. And she wrote these books, which are, you know, massive bestsellers that have sustained generations of young readers. So it wasn't the end of these women's stories or their ambitions. But it was certainly presented that way narratively. I'm curious, you know, you've written a book about unmarried women and their power in social movements throughout American history. You yourself now are not an unmarried woman. Do you feel like you have to be apologetic about that? I don't feel like I have to be apologetic, but I do feel like I have to acknowledge it. And there are certain ways in which criticism of it is fair. 
right? So criticism of my position as a married woman, I got to, just to be clear for your listeners, I do write about this in the book. I got married at 35. It's actually when I started to write this book was in the months leading up to my marriage in part because I was so aware of the fact that I had lived this, I had been really single through my twenties, like not (laughs) relationships. Like I, you know, many of my single girlfriends were, you know, had these functional, warm, nice, or not so nice relationships that they were in and out of. And I just didn't, I mean, I had one relationship that I was in and out of for a couple years, but most of my, certainly high school, college, I had really identified as a single person. I hadn't had any good experiences with love. I didn't assume I was going to have any good experiences with love, which didn't make me hopeless. I always sort of hoped that someday I would, you know, meet somebody and connect, but I didn't have a track record that suggested this was likely. But nonetheless, I had this really full, busy life full of commitments and responsibilities and pleasures and successes and failures and ambitions and goals and disappointments, all this, like I was an adult. I was an adult. I had a really full life. And when I was getting married, some of the ways that people were responding in the way that you respond to people getting married, like, isn't this wonderful? This is a great, you know, which is great. It was lovely and wonderful. And I was extremely happy. Really for me, it was falling in love that it was like, wow, this can be a good thing. And not just make your life worse, which is what my experiences with relationships had been in the past. (laughs) I sort of, I was obviously very grateful for all the good wishes, but it was so interesting to me that marriage was treated as like, it was so not the beginning of my adulthood. It was happening in the middle of my adulthood. I mean, still I'm 40. I have still been married for like a third of the time of my adulthood that I spent unmarried. (laughs) Um, It was a a lovely, wonderful thing that happened in the midst of me being a full human adult (laughs) um, living in the world. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there wasn't enough acknowledgement of the the fullness, complexity, and validity of the adult life that I was, that I had been leading and that so many of my peers were leading and are still leading, not necessarily being anyone's wife. Still to come on Nerdette, more with Rebecca Traster. We compare Sex in the City with Broad City and explore the landscape of single ladies on TV today. And then a pile of feminist homework. This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita. And this week we are talking with Rebecca Tracer. She is the author of the delightful book, All the Single Ladies. In just a minute, we'll talk to her about the differences and similarities between Broad City and Sex in the City. But first, we thought we'd ask Rebecca who doesn't like this book. I have gotten a little angry feedback, although interestingly, so far, I keep waiting because there's there are <laughs> a bunch of people who have really serious and legitimate arguments with which I vociferously disagree, but which I understand nonetheless are deeply researched and thoughtful and we're just we just disagree. There are a lot of people who really believe that the move away from marriage is bad for everybody. Perhaps they believe it most about that it's not good for for children. And there are people, I mean, certainly this group includes conservative politicians and pundits. Um and I haven't heard from them yet and I thought I would and I may. That may be coming soon. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, it's still kind of early, right? It's still kind of <laughs> early. It also includes lots of people who, you know, there there are, again, I would say that they are more conservatively minded, but there are certainly um, researchers and writers who've done a lot of work looking at changing marriage patterns and just come to profoundly different conclusions than I do. There are a lot of people who believe that it would be really good for society to reinstate an early marriage norm. And those people run the gamut from Mitt Romney to some marriage researchers who think, you know, who look at the ways that a sort of move away from marriage as the defining organizing norm for American society is really bad for that society. I really disagree with that. So far, the people who have been angry about the book, there's, there was one review in The Federalist, which is a conservative publication that did call me a commie, <laughs> which I'm pretty proud about, <laughs> and really thought that I was just, and it's true, what I'm suggesting in this It's book, true you're a commie? You are a communist, a Rebecca? Yeah. Okay. Glad we cleared that up. Good. I, I do come from a long line of commies, so that's fair <laughs> enough. But it is true that part of what I'm proposing in this book, and I'm doing this, it's important to note, I'm doing this not as a politician. I can be impractical in my suggestion that we should have subsidized daycare, certainly paid leave, paid sick days, that we should raise the minimum wage, that we need to increase welfare benefits, all of which I do believe would be, I mean, I think it's absolutely necessary for a reorganized society in which we're not living in early married hetero units, which was how we organized this country for a long time. And that the government has to better support women living independently from marriage. And that's not just, I mean, the the conservative response to that is like, oh, so you want the government to be your husband or your daddy. Well, the government has supported men from the founding in many ways, you know, from first establishing their franchise and then protecting their enfranchisement throughout the history of the United States, which means that white men have, from the beginning, been able to choose the people who represent them and their interests. Also, failing to protect or encourage the economic equality of women, which would have challenged men, and particularly white men, for their economic power because the government hasn't instituted strong equal pay protections or done what it needs to do to give women an equal economic opportunity, things like paid leave. It has essentially preserved male power as a domain that's gone relatively unchallenged by women. One of the criticisms, and I've been getting really positive reviews for which I'm very grateful, one thread that has come up in a couple of reviews that I think is really interesting and worth addressing is that generally the book is positive about the social, political, larger historical dimensions of this move away from marriage as early marriage as the validating norm for women. And so it is positive in that respect. 
And it is positive about the larger historical and social dimensions of being unmarried. But I do include the stories of lots of unmarried women who are not necessarily happy with their, you know, who express their feelings of loneliness, their feelings that they have been rejected or are left behind. There are all kinds of negative dimensions that I report on in the book. But I am aware that the fact that it is a largely positive historical picture of what the move away from marriage, I feel like there is that valid criticism that's like, oh, this married lady is telling us it's a great thing for women to be unmarried. And I think that's something that I am aware of and I think is a valid response, although I don't think that's what I'm doing. I think the positivity comes from the larger historical scope of things and not necessarily, oh, all unmarried women are thrilled to be unmarried, which is certainly not the (laughs) argument that I make in the book. I do think it makes a lot of us feel better about it, though, which is really important, you know? Well, the one thing I'd also say about what the book is about is that it's not about a binary between two existences, married existence on one hand and unmarried existence on the other. What it is is about what happens when you lift this one oppressive model that has been in place for centuries, which is adult womanhood necessarily begins with marriage because that is the institution on which adult women are dependent. But when you remove that model, what you get is incredible diversity of paths. You get lives, adult lives that may or may not include any combination of love, work, children, sex, um, monogamy, celibacy, marriage, early marriage, late marriage, brief marriage. Yeah. I mean, so it's not about two stark opposite experiences. It's about when you remove the one highway (laughs) down which a lot of women were hustled for so much of history and say, actually, there are now a bunch of roads open. What you're going to get is millions of women going in millions of different directions that better suit their goals, ambitions, tastes, predilections, turn-ons, turn-offs, you know. Um, And so that's really what the book is about. I think that so much of this gets logged out in the political realm. But as you talk about in the book, a lot of it happens in more the pop culture world. And so you mentioned earlier Sex in the City and Greta and I earlier were just talking about, you know, thinking of Sex in the City as a time capsule from when it aired more than a decade ago now and thinking about the relationship between the female friendships on that show and on Broad City right now and how different they are, even though the premises of those two shows are not that different from each other. It's about young female friendship in New York City, right? Those are the premises of basically both shows. But Sex in the City and Broad City couldn't be more different in almost every other way. And I just wondered if you think about Sex in the City versus Broad City, what does it tell you about how feminism has changed in just that short span of time? Well, I think in part you're talking about the normalization of independent female life. So when Sex and the City was first made, the marriage patterns started to change in a mass way in the 90s, and they've just sort of built ever since. But Sex and the City was written as a newspaper column in the mid-90s, sort of as this was happening. And it was produced as a television show around the turn of the 21st century. And so it, in many ways, is cartoonish and overblown in its symbolism, right? And it uses, I write about this a lot in the book, the way that it uses these sort of hyper-privileged things like $600 shoes, the big drinks, the crazy clothes, the, the excess, which makes it, I think, now subject to a lot of very legitimate critique, including my own at the time that it aired and since, for dwelling on privilege. But... Emily Nussbaum has argued, the television critic Emily Nussbaum has argued, and I cite her in the book, and I also I find this a really serious argument that 
it was doing really important work. And it was, to my eye, it was using this sort of overblown cartoonish symbolism to make really big statements about how revolutionary and massive this shift was. And it was using really these outsized characters to make what was in many ways a kind of revolutionary point. Now, the sight of unmarried women on television, it's not that they were unheard of before, actually. You know, it had been, there was Living Single in the early 90s. There was there was Friends, which followed Living Single. Before that, obviously, there had been Mary Tyler Moore. There had been uh, That Girl. But that kind of, the Sex and the City version of unmarried women with power and unapologetic about being unmarried and unapologetic about their commitments to each other, that was pretty new. And so it was brought to us in an outsized kind of loud form. Now you have television that is populated by Shondaland. Let's start there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Shonda Rhimes has given us many of those characters. Many and unmarried those women. characters as norms. You have Mindy Kaling. You have, you know, and so Broad City is now, there's girls, obviously, who are much more understated and less <laughs> flashy. And so Broad City, I think, is part of the process of now taking these characters as regular people, not revolutionary, outsized, brightly lit figures who are who are showcasing some revolutionary change. Rather, that it is the normalization of unmarried women and sort of presenting them as regular. Yeah, that the defining characteristic in the script doesn't say unmarried woman number one, and that's sort of who this person is, and that's what all their storylines are going to be about is the hunt for a man or, you know, the even the positively focused sometimes on sex in the city. You know, like you said, sometimes it was they were powerful and independent, but it always did feel like the crux of each of their lives was to find a man, even though they felt independent in other ways. Whereas I don't see that in things like Broad City or... It was almost seen as revolutionary when Mindy Kaling went with a sort of baby marriage storyline because everybody sort of went, oh, but this is the feminist show. Why is it following this trope? She almost got blowback in the opposite direction from what would have happened just a decade or two earlier. Right. Well, one of the things about Sex and the City, and I wasn't a watcher when it was on in part because I didn't have cable. I was. yeah, And I write about this in the book, how when I was young and Sex and the City was airing, I wasn't watching it because I didn't have HBO. I was in my 20s. I was living in New York. I was writing for the New York Observer, which happened to be the paper that Candace Bushnell had published the original column in. And everyone said to me all the time, like, oh, your life is just like Sex in the City. And my life was nothing. <laughs> um, and so I, I really sort of nursed a grudge against it for a long time. So I'm speaking only with, I've gone back and seen lots of it since, and I write in the book about how eventually I actually developed an affection for it and a lot of its messages. But I do think what's interesting is that even at the time, the ending in which Carrie got married, in which there was sort of a man for everybody, people really did object to it at the time because that wasn't necessarily in keeping with the spirit of the show. I don't think that the show, I think the show in many ways, yes, there was a sort of fixation on men and sex and a sort of hetero ideal of, you know, you got to find the man. But there was so much else going on in that show, including this tremendous commitment to each other as the true loves, which is one of the issues that I deal with at great length in my book is friendship and the role of female friendship. And I think there's even this scene where the Carrie Bradshaw got Mr. Big, who she winds up marrying at the end. But before that, he comes in and he says to her friends, you're the loves of her life. It's a little too easy 
to characterize the end of the series, which was her eventually winding up with this guy who, as far as I can tell, was a terrible match for her. Yeah. (laughs) And like not necessarily a happy ending. I think you don't want to overread that ending to make it the meaning of the whole series. Because I think the meaning of the whole series was more complicated than that. And there was a tremendous amount of blowback at the time the series ended with Carrie winding up with his husband saying, that's not, that's not the way the story should end. But yeah, things have gotten more normalized. It doesn't have to, one of the things that's interesting, and it's interesting when you talk about the Mindy Project, is that there is now such a proliferation of independent women that you can now see a bigger variety of them. This is something that I've talked about a lot with regard to everybody from sort of Hillary Clinton to when you're talking about the people who are initially revolutionary, they are always insufficient because they have to stand in for the experiences of so many. So a show like Sex and the City wound up standing in for more than it should have. Whereas now when you have shows about all kinds of different women and not nearly enough, but more shows about more kinds of women, more popular culture about more kinds of women, you're able to see those women as sort of human beings who move in a variety of ways and have a variety of impulses and a variety of commitments. And, and that it's not that this one story has to stand in for all women, which never works because there is no one story that stands in for all women. There is no one person who's a great representative and hero for all women. This is one of the things we always have to move past. And one of the reasons that the people who are brought to us as individual avatars are always insufficient and always disappointing because the the first people or the first products to cross this line and show us what, and be representative of a larger group, but they're only, they're individuals. They can't stand in for everything. So Beyonce, one of the reasons Beyonce gets criticized, one of the reasons Hillary Clinton gets criticized, well, she doesn't represent this, she doesn't represent that, but of course, they're just one person. You need, what we need as we move forward, an independent life for women, women living like human beings, like adults, like uh, men, you know, (laughs) Um, as actual valid adults, regardless of whether or not they're married, the more we normalize that, the bigger diversity of versions of it we're going to see, which means that there won't be so much weight on, does this person wind up married? Does that person not wind up married? Did that person, you know, it's not so freighted when it becomes more normalized and more average for us to see real experiences and diverse experiences reflected in our pop culture or in our, in our leaders. Thanks to Rebecca Tracer for joining us. She writes for New York Magazine and is an editor at Elle. Her new book is called All the Single Ladies. It is out now, and you must go read this book. Just ahead, homework from Stacey Schiff and Sloane Crosley. And us, probably, let's be honest. Yeah, we have some thoughts. <laughs> we have some addenda. Addenda? <laughs> addenda. Greta Johnson, and it is time for homework. Now is also maybe a good time to tell you that we're going to give you quite a bit of homework this week because it needs to last you 
until our hiatus ends in April. We're taking just a few weeks off. Yes, we're taking a mini break, but do not worry. We will be back on April 28th. There is no need for conspiracy theories. We're already working on episodes for next season, and we think you're going to love them. So with that in mind, here are your assignments. These are all either about single ladies or by single ladies or just good feminist things. So the first one, obviously, read all the single ladies. It's a really good book. I think you're going to love it. Check it out. I think it may be in my top three books about marriage. One is also marriage, comma, a history. Ooh. Because it reminds me of Hogwarts, comma, a history. <laughs> but also because it's a really good book about the history of marriage. Is it actually a comma or is it a colon? I think it's a comma. Wow. Marriage, comma, a history. I do like it. It's a good book. Also, my other favorite book, if you're just like in the gender studies mood, The Second Shift. Oh, cool. That's the book that sets up the idea that, um, ladies do all the chores. So even when they went to work, they were still kind of screwed. You know, a new study just came out about that. And we're still doing all the chores. Ah, I know. All right. Number two on your list of feminist homework. This is from Stacey Schiff, the author of The Witches, which is about the Salem Witch Trials, as we mentioned, which were largely single ladies. Indeed. She stopped by WBEZ on her book tour, and this is the homework she assigned. Well, you know, I have unfortunately been on a lot of airplanes lately, and I cannot get enough of the Ferrante novels, but that will not be a surprise to you because everyone else in America seems to be under that same spell. But I cannot put these books down. Really? Yes. And actually, as soon as I finished, you know what I would like to do? Go back to the beginning and start all over again. They're wow. just magnificent. That and, is they're, and, and magnificent in that way where you don't really know. It's like Canal Scar. Why am I falling under the spell of this? I don't get it. You know, these are not particularly graceful sentences. Why can't I stop reading? And there's a bitterness to it, and the bitterness is just really somehow appealing. Ooh, I think that's why I like Scandal so much, for that, <laughs> for that same reason, honestly. <laughs> Might be why I was so stuck in the 17th century, too, is, is now that you think, now that I think about it. <laughs> What's interesting about this Ferrante series, Trisha, is that that's also what Kim Barker mentioned when she was here. So two of our guests from this season have recommended the same book series? Yeah, totally. I think it's probably time for us to check it out. This is Co-Signed Homework by Kim Barker and Stacey Schiff, so check that out. It is. And also related to that conversation with Stacey, you know, I mentioned Scandal because I can't not mention Scandal. But we can't really get into Scandal because I have too many things to say about the current season. Yeah, yeah. But we'll have to get into that one of these days because there is a lot going on I mean, what is happening? (laughs) Anyway, Shonda has a new show coming out this week called The Catch, which we're also really excited about. So that is also on your list of assignments. Check out The Catch. It might be terrible. It might be delightful. Who knows? We'll talk about it. Let us know what you think. We'll watch it because we have TVs now. We didn't used to have TVs. Yeah, we have TVs. But we got some TVs uh, so we could talk about it. Or we could just talk about how much we love Peter Krause, even if the show isn't great. Whatever, whatever. But in either case, we would love to hear from you more, I think, with homework. So that's a thing. Let us know what you think about the assignments we give you. What's number three, Trisha? More literary homework from Sloane Crosley. Sloane, by the way, wrote a great New York Times op-ed over the summer about how women apologize too much. Here's her homework for Nerd Out listeners. I think, and this is actually uh, tangentially related to my my novel, but it is not the novel. Uh, (laughs) So the novel is in many ways a tribute to one of my favorite sort of underloved short forms or art forms, which is the short story. And it's loved intensely in specific pockets. I mean, the New Yorker has heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) University of Iowa, heard of it. (laughs) Um, There are all these Easter eggs in the novel that are tributes to short stories. And one of them, or one big one, is Kezia. The name of the main character is named after a Catherine Mansfield short story called The Doll's House. 
and it's in a collection called The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield, who's this amazing New Zealand writer who um, lived and really published around the early 20th century and was born to this very, I think, Wellington, New Zealand, maybe, um, very proper uh, family in, in society. And she writes about society and class and with such warmth and heart. And she gets girls extremely well. No, that's nice. I'm excited. So can I tell you what my problem is with short stories normally? Since you just... end all the time. Yeah, man. Like if I really <laughs> like them, I want them to be a book. You should read Alice Munro. She gets, she really, she really pushes the envelope. It's almost, there's, they're almost novellas. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. And then, Hey, I, I just finished writing a novel. So I mean, you, you don't have to sell me, but I don't know. There's something, there are things you can do in short stories that you can't do in novels and vice versa. Oh my gosh. Sloane Crosley, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh no. Thank you for having me on. Such fun. That is Sloane Crosley. She is the author of a new novel called The Clasp, which you should also check out. It's pretty good. And then Trisha, you have number, you have one more, right? What's, what's our extra bonus homework? Extra bonus homework for all the single ladies week is Madam Secretary. Oh, good. I You have been wanting to talk about this for quite some time now. Here's the thing. Tay Leone is great in this show. Everybody's pretty good on this show. It almost fills the West Wing-shaped hole in my heart when I watch it. The showrunner is Barbara Hall, another fantastic female showrunner in the world of television. You've got Shonda Rhimes, but you've also got Barbara Hall across the way doing Madam Secretary. Hillary Clinton, when she was on The Colbert Show recently, said that the two TV shows she watches regularly are Madam Secretary and The Good Wife, which I just think is funny. I'm not really using that as a further endorsement. More just, <laughs> I think it's funny that she watches a TV show about her job. That is an endorsement of the show, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I think most like cops say that it's not that fun to watch cop shows and lawyers say it's not that fun to watch lawyer shows because they make it seem like their jobs are really easy and can always be completed in an hour. And this show does that a little bit. It's like a political procedural show. So there's usually some sort of international crisis and or family crisis that Taya Leone, as the Secretary of State, is trying to solve in any given episode. And I think the show does a really nice job of balancing her family life and her work life in a way that I think most of us don't think is real at all. It's a very aspirational view of like this family eats dinner together most nights, but she's the Secretary of State. But it's sort of like that warm, fuzzy thing that good TV gives you of thinking like, oh, maybe women can have it all. We can't. But Taylor Leone kind of does. Morning. I heard about the vice president. Is he okay? Yeah, as far as I know, he's being prepped for surgery. That's not what you're here about. What then? Air Force One is missing. What do you mean? We lost all communication somewhere over the Pacific. We can't find it. When did we last make contact? Half an hour ago. And they suddenly went offline. They're out of radar range, so we have no idea what happened. We're scrambling the F-15s out of Hickam Field in Honolulu. They're about two hours out of making visual contact. All communications down. What could knock all that out? Nothing, ma'am. Obviously something. A cyber attack. Hijackers who knew what they were doing. All due respect, the communication system on Air Force One is the most sophisticated in the world. All of it is designed so that this cannot happen. And yet this has happened. Then the plane is crashed. Pentagon has taken us to DEFCON 3, and I think we should consider the decapitation strike scenario. Someone is trying to take down the top tier of our government in one swoop. It's being considered. The president and the vice president suddenly out of commission at the same time. That's why it's being considered. 
That's good homework. So that was quite a long list. We'll be sure to post it on our website. We will also feature that and much more in our newsletter, which will be a great way to keep in touch with us during this hiatus. A reminder, again, we will be back with new episodes April 28th. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Joe Dassault. Our interns are Maya Cole and Sebrin Mallard. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you are, in fact, already listening to us. But we would really love it if you would take the plunge and subscribe or like or follow or whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks to The Moxie for the iTunes stars. She says we are way engaging, which is way cool. So mega thanks to The Moxie. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Goodreads. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where there are podcasts for nerds of all stripes. Find out more at wbez.org slash podcasts. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Greta, do I sound nerdier when I can't breathe through my nose? Do you think it makes me feel like a more authentic nerdette? I don't know. I think you sound pretty cool, man. I sound cool? <laughs> yeah, you sound real I cool. feel a little warm. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.